There is no better news than to hear that God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for Him. And yet, it's all too easy for us to slip back into thinking that we can somehow secure our standing before God by our efforts and our works. In this message from Galatians chapter 2, David Platt points us to Scripture's teaching about how we are justified or declared righteous before God. God's free and undeserved grace comes to us by faith alone based on what Christ has done on our behalf. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Freed Through Faith. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 2. We've got a great word to study today. Not that we don't have a great word every week, uh, hopefully, but I am hoping, I am praying that this chapter of Scripture will come alive in this room and alive among hearts in this room, transforming hearts, lives, and, and maybe transforming many of our understanding of Christianity. Um, so I want, us, I want us to pray together before we dive in. God, we, we praise you for the breathtaking, awe-inspiring, shocking, startling truth that you became a man and that the name of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. That you are not a far off distant God separated from us, but you have dwelled among us. All glory be to your name. And we praise you for giving us your word that we have the opportunity to hear and listen to today. God, I, I praise you for the privilege of preaching and teaching this word to this body of your people. And Father, I want to be faithful to this text. I want to, to represent it clearly and accurately. It is good, and so I pray that you would bring my words in line with your word, and that you would take your word and do what only your spirit can do through your word, and you would open our hearts and open our eyes to see the glory of Christ in your word. And that you would anoint this word in our ears to transform our lives for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we talked about being freed by grace. We're going to jump right into the notes you've got. Uh, from the worship guide you received when you came in, being freed by grace. And the truth we reiter reiterated over and over again was that God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him. And we saw that over and over again in Galatians chapter one. And in, in one sense, that truth is freeing but in another sense, it's, it's kind of frustrating because we want to please God. 2 Corinthians 5 says we make it our goal to please God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, 4, 1, both talk about living to please God. So if we want to please God and we live to please God, if that's our goal, but his pleasure in us is not based on our performance for him, then how do we please him? 
And that's where we're going to dive into Galatians chapter 2 today. In Galatians chapter 2, there are three different pictures I want to show you. Two episodes recounting something that had happened in the past and then an explanation. Two episodes and an explanation. And what I want us to do is kind of walk through each one of them one by one. We're going to camp out in the last one. But in order to understand the last one, we've got to have the first two pictures. And so we're going to read each one and think about them and then camp out in that, in that third one. So first picture we see in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. I want you to follow along with me, just picture the scene that Paul is describing here, and then we'll talk about it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. He writes, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as, as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." So here's the picture, Galatians 2, 1 through 10. This is a picture of legalism. And I've got it explained there in your notes is right behavior with wrong belief. Here's the, here's the situation. Biblical scholars debate exactly when this episode that's being described happened. There's a lot of folks, in fact, the majority of folks believe that it's referring to Acts 15, which we looked at a little bit last week, the Jerusalem Council, when they had this big discussion about uh, whether or not uh, People should be circumcised in order to become a part of the church or needed to follow different Jewish rules or laws or customs. So a lot of people think it's Acts 15. Some people think it's before Acts 15. Um, not that it really matters to you, but I would probably fall into the category of before Acts 15 and not with where the majority of scholars, people who are much smarter than I am, uh, believe this happened. But anyway, it doesn't matter. In the end, what is important is what was going on. They were having a discussion about entrance into the church. Do you need to follow Jewish rules, customs? Do you need to be circumcised, in particular if you're a Gentile, in order to be saved? And Titus was there, a Gentile, uncircumcised, and the victory in this picture was the fact that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. If he had been compelled to be circumcised, that would have been a huge victory for the Judaizers. Now remember, we talked about these guys last week. They were the ones in the church that were saying, you need to be circumcised or you need to follow these Jewish laws in order to be saved. And so if Titus had, had done that, then that would have been a, a victory for them and really a resounding blow to the gospel of grace because it would have been adding human requirements to necessitate salvation. Instead, by telling Titus, no, you don't need to do this, they were affirming the gospel of grace that Paul was preaching. And so the issue at stake there was legalism, which we talked about last week. Legalism is either working according to our own power or according to our own rules. And ultimately, legalism is working to earn the favor of God, thinking 
that by doing certain things that we are earning or meriting favor before God. Now, the reason I describe that as right behavior with wrong belief is because the Judaizers, these people who were saying we need to follow these Jewish laws or customs, we need to be circumcised, they weren't saying bad things needed to be done. These are good things. This is Jewish law. This is Old Testament law. This is something that God had done among his people for years. And so this wasn't necessarily bad behavior. It was not good or bad in and of itself to be circumcised or not. But the issue was that became wrong when it was linked. Those behaviors became wrong when they were linked with the belief that by doing those things, you were meriting or earning favor before God. I want to say that one more time, and then we'll think about how this relates to us. These behaviors, good behaviors, became bad when they were linked with wrong belief, the belief that by doing those things, you could earn or merit favor before God. The reason I emphasize that is because we're not having a lot of discussions in our day about circumcision or following this Jewish law or that Jewish law, but let's think about some good behaviors, good things to do. Having a quiet time, Bible study, coming to worship on a Sunday, serving people. These are good things, but don't miss it. They become legalistic, they become bad as soon as they are linked with the belief that in doing those things, you're earning or meriting favor before God. That because you do these things, you have better standing before God. That because you had great quiet times this week, that you have better standing before God, less guilt on your conscience than the guy sitting next to you who just forgot to pray this week at all. We start, we all, we talked about this some last week, we're all recovering legalists in a sense because we're all born with a nature that says we can make our way to God and certainly when I do something, that counts for some kind of favor or merit before God. And that's legalism. Right behaviors but with wrong belief, thinking those behaviors make us more acceptable before God and we need to avoid that kind of thinking. That's the first picture, legalism. Right behavior with wrong belief. Second picture, Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 This is one of the most tense, dramatic episodes in the New Testament described here. Listen to it. Galatians 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him. This is Paul talking. He says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, what that just described was a public confrontation between the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. Can you imagine how cold it was in that room for just a couple of minutes? How tense it was? Whoa, Peter is speaking, confronting Paul to his face. Paul is confronting Peter to his face. I mean, this is the guy who preached the first Christian sermon. This is the leader of the disciples. He's getting confronted by Paul. This is going to be juicy right here. And what happens is they have a discussion about an action, a behavior that Peter was doing. And in the first part of this chapter, we see a picture of legalism, right behavior with wrong beliefs. Second part of this chapter, we see a picture of hypocrisy which is right belief with wrong behavior. Hypocrisy, right belief with wrong behavior. Let me, let me help give some context to what 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 is describing. In fact, hold your place here and turn me back to the left. Go to Acts chapter 10. You'll go back a couple books to the left and you'll come to Acts. Find Acts chapter 10. While you're turning there, let me start to fill in some of the blanks. Antioch was a church made up of predominantly Gentiles, non-Jews. And Peter, it said in Galatians 2, had gone to the church at Antioch and he had sat down at the table with these Gentile Christians and he was eating with them, he was fellowshipping with them, things were going great, they were hanging out together. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was a huge deal for Peter. Peter is a good Jewish man. And all throughout, for centuries, all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is the people of God are first of all given strict dietary laws You don't eat certain kinds of food. The Gentiles ate those kinds of food, and the Jewish people said, no, those foods are unclean, and you dishonor God when you eat those foods. And then there were all kinds of laws in the Old Testament that separated Jews from Gentiles to where they wouldn't even intermingle together, and God had actually designed it this way because he did not want his people to fall into the immorality and the idolatry that was surrounding them in these pagan nations. And so there were laws not only against intermingling, but then also against eating certain foods. So you can imagine when Christianity comes in the first century and now Jews and Gentiles are in the church together, now they got to decide, do we even eat with each other? I don't know if I can eat your food or I don't even know if I can be in the same room as you, sit at the same table with you. This is why, remember in the Gospels, Jesus was startling the religious establishment when he would sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners. They didn't know what to do with that. This was big. Acts chapter 10 gives us a little bit of a picture of how Peter came around on this picture. In the beginning of Acts chapter 10, there was a guy named Cornelius. Now follow with me here. Cornelius was a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile. He was a Gentile. And he had a vision one day, and an angel told him in a vision, you need to go find this guy named Peter and bring and have some people bring him to your house. Cornelius didn't know exactly why, but when you see an angel in a vision and the angel tells you to do something, you you do it. And so that's what he did. He sent some of his men to go find Peter. After he'd sent his men, while the men were traveling to go find Peter, pick up in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, what happened? About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city where Peter was, Peter went up on the roof to pray where he was staying. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. Peter says, no, I don't eat that. That's unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, he's trying to figure out what's going on. The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. Peter's wondering what in the world's going on at this point. He just went up on the roof to pray. 
All of a sudden, he sees these unclean animals. He's told to eat those, and they're taken away. And this Gentile has now sent people for him to come and be with this Gentile at his house. So listen to what happens. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expected them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So Cornelius decides he wants his whole family in on the party. So not only is Peter going to go meet with one Gentile, now we got a whole host of Gentiles, a whole packed out house full of Gentiles. As Peter entered the house, you can imagine his nervousness. Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. This didn't help. Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I'm only a man myself. Verse 27, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, listen closely, verse 28, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. That's what we talked about. This was against everything Peter knew. But God, Peter said, has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So then Cornelius begins to explain what happened. And you get to verse 34 and listen to what Peter says. Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. What he does then is he starts preaching the gospel. You get down to verse 44. I want you to listen to how they respond. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, in other words, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This was monumental in the first century. This was the entrance of Gentiles into the church. This is a mega event in the New Testament church. And we see how important it is and even how controversial it is based on what happens right after this. Look at Acts 11.1. 1. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. How do you think they responded? Do you think they were happy? Listen to what they did. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Why are you doing this? Listen to what Peter said. He said, he began to explain everything that happened to them precisely as it had happened. He recounts the whole story. And you get down to verse 17. And he says, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And then right after this is the picture we have, first picture we have of the church at Antioch, which was made up of mainly Gentile believers. It even says down in verse 26, that the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So that gives you a little background. Now we come back to this episode that Paul's talking about in Galatians 2. And he says, when Peter first came to these believers at Antioch, in light of that transformation that happened in Acts 10 11, he was sitting down at the table with them. He was eating with them. Everything was good. But then this group of Judaizers comes to Antioch. And all of a sudden, slowly, Peter starts backing away from the table. And before long, he's not even eating with the Gentiles anymore. 
not even associating with him, not spending that time with him. Instead, he's over here with these Jewish believers who are teaching that you can't even be accepted before God unless you're circumcised and you follow these Jewish laws and customs. And so Paul finds out about this, and he goes to Peter, and he confronts him to his face. And the key phrase is in verse 14. He says, when I saw that they, and he's talking about Peter and Barnabas. Barnabas was a, start, a part of starting the church at Antioch. He was doing the same thing. When I saw that they, listen to this phrase, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That's the hypocrisy. Right belief with wrong behavior. Peter believed the gospel. He knew the gospel. Peter preached the gospel. But his life was not reflecting the gospel. Right belief, wrong behavior. And so Paul confronted him on it. Now, thanks for the history lesson, Dave. What does this have to do with us? Well, again, we're not talking about what we eat or who we eat with. But are there inconsistencies in our life when it comes to the truth of the gospel? Are there areas where we claim to have right belief, but our behavior does not reflect that belief. Absolutely, that's, that's part of why we walk through that radical series this fall. Because if we really believe in a savior who came for the sake of the poor and the powerless, then there is much in our wealthy lifestyles that does not add up, it's not in line with the truth of the gospel, it's hypocrisy. And that's what the word does. It exposes that to us in the same way that if someone was living in, in sexual immorality day after day after day after day and they claimed to believe that Christ was their satisfaction, the followers of Christ, we would say to them, no, your life is not in line with the truth of the gospel. And it would be right. It would be good. We would, as a brother or sister, it would be necessary to confront a brother or sister in that and say, your, your, your gospel, the gospel you believe is not being reflected here. That's not legalistic to do. Paul's not being legalistic. That's Christianity, to help each other, to spur one another on so that our lives reflect the gospel. And you see in, in these two areas, two extremes or errors we need to avoid. We need to avoid doing things in order to earn favor or merit favor before God. The more I do, the better off I am. Legalism. Right behavior, doing good things with wrong belief. At the same time, we've got to avoid hypocrisy. Saying, well, we, I believe in a gospel of grace and I believe God loves me no matter what I do and living a life that looks just like the rest of the world. That's hypocrisy. And what we've got to do as a community of faith is help guard each other from both of these. And we need the word to help us do that. I would even add one more thing in here uh, that... As I was studying this passage and praying this week, uh, I trust the Lord uh, brought this to my mind, but I see in the first century church this dangerous tendency, temptation to develop a, a two-tiered two sense of Christianity, especially between Jews and Gentiles. You had Jews and Gentiles, and Jews because they followed the Old Testament law in many ways, were seen as more favorable before God, and Gentiles because they didn't, almost felt like second-class Christians at many points. And there's an unhealthy two-tiered system of Christianity that's, that's there. It's in other ways in the New Testament. It's in other ways in contemporary church. And, and I want us as a faith family to be very careful to guard against that in any way, that there's no two-tiered class of Christianity. There's not Christians at Brook Hills that go on mission trips and then there's who don't or 
Christians who give 2% or those who don't, or Christians who drink or those who don't, or Christians who do this or that and don't do this or that. Because what happens is we start to identify ourselves as maybe more spiritual because we do this or that, and those who don't do this or that is less accepted before God. And we have to be very careful to remember that we're all in this thing together. And we're helping each other avoid legalism, and we're helping each other avoid hypocrisy. And we need to help each other avoid both of these. Now, how do we do that? How do we avoid right behavior with wrong belief and right belief with wrong behavior? How do we bring them together? And that's the third picture I want you to see. I want you to see a picture of faith in Galatians chapter 2. Right belief and right behavior. How do you bring those two together? And the answer is faith. I want to show it to you in Galatians chapter 2 verse 15. This is where Paul explains, brings all this to a conclusion. Listen to what he says. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ. Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Do you see the key word? It's mentioned four different times. Circle it when you see it. Verse 16, three different times in that one verse. Know that a man is justified, by, not, not justified by observing the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. Circle it there. So we too have put our faith in Christ. Circle it there. That we may be justified by faith in Christ. And then you get down to the verse 20. It says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Everything revolves around faith. Paul says, the whole picture revolves around faith. Not, not faith plus something else, not faith plus circumcision or this law or that custom or that practice. Faith and faith alone. So I want to show you, I want to show you two results, two fruits of faith in Galatians chapter 2. Two glorious fruits, results of faith in Galatians chapter 2. Number one, you've got this in your notes. Through faith in Christ, first result, first fruit, through faith in Christ, we are accepted before God. Through faith in Christ, faith alone, not faith plus anything, faith alone, we are accepted before God. What Paul is saying in verse 15 and 16, he's going to Peter and he's saying, listen, you and I, Peter, we're Jews. And we did not come to God or Christ by the law, the law couldn't do that. If, if the law could do that, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to die on the cross. That's what he says at the very end. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You and I as Jews who have the law need faith in Christ and just faith in Christ to come to God in the same way the Gentiles need faith in Christ. And what he's saying to Peter is, you're living like these Gentiles are not acceptable before God because they're eating those things. You're separating yourself from them. If God accepts them by faith, then why are you not accepting them in their faith? And the picture that Paul gives us here is one of the golden 
nuggets, one of the most important words in all the New Testament for our understanding of salvation. And that word is justified or justification. You see it mentioned four times too. Look in verse 16. Know that a man is not justified. You might circle or square that if you want to distinguish it. Justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, and then in fact, when you get to the very end of this chapter, verse 21, when it says, if righteousness could begin through the law, that word righteousness is actually the same word in the original language of the New Testament for justification. It's just translated their righteousness. This word is the key to unlocking so much of Christianity. It's translated throughout the New Testament, justified, just, justification, righteousness, righteous, right. And the picture Paul is giving us here is the fact that we are justified before God by faith. Justified by faith. And faith alone. I cannot overemphasize how huge this is. Luther said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Calvin said it is the hinge upon which everything turns. It was the heart of the Reformation and it's the heart of Christianity. Luther went on to say, he said, talking about justification by faith alone, he said, this is the truth of the gospel. It is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Luther said, beat it into people's heads, justification. And that's what Paul is doing. Justification, justification, justification. Sounds forceful. Why is this so important? What I want to do is I want to walk us through a biblical definition of justification. Every word, extremely important based on this text of Scripture and other texts, especially that Paul wrote. And I want us to see every follower of Christ in this room needs a clear grasp, firm grasp on justification. So what is justification? Got in your notes. Justification is the gracious act of God. Start there. The gracious act of God. It is something God does by his grace. Here in chapter 2, verse 16, the very end of that verse, by observing the law, no one will be justified, Paul says. He's quoting there from Psalm chapter 143, verse 2. We don't have time to go back there, but Psalm 143, verse 1 and 2 is where the psalmist cries out. It's crying out for mercy and says, the psalmist says, no one on earth is righteous before you. No one is just before you. Same picture we've got in Romans chapter three, verse nine through 20. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. And the picture is, there is nothing in man that would cause God to justify him, that would initiate justification, that would bring about justification. Absolutely nothing. It is all of God, not from man at all. Now we talk about this a lot. We talk about how salvation is by grace, all of grace. It's all the work of God. But we've got to be careful. Even when we think about faith, we've got to be careful not to think about faith in terms of it being like a work of the law. This is why we talk sometimes about caution when praying a prayer or signing a card or doing this or that because the 
The tendency we have is to say, well, say these magic words, and this is what you do in order to be saved. Do this in order to be saved. And the reality of what Scripture is teaching is, in order to be saved, God has to do the work. Even faith itself is evidence of God's grace in our lives. There's nothing in us that causes us to reach out and want God. That is a work of the grace of God in our hearts. It is the gracious act of God by which God declares. Keyword there is declares. Justification is a declaration. It's a declaration from God. The word picture in justification, this is a legal term or a forensic term, which basically means that the picture is a judge declaring a judgment on someone. Judge looks at a case and pronounces his judgment, declares something just or unjust, right or not right, guilty or not guilty. Now, this is important because justification in Scripture is an act, not a process. Follow with me here. This is extremely important. Justification is something that is declared at a point in time, not a process. You can't be more justified today than you are Yesterday, you were yesterday. You can't be justified more tomorrow than you are today. You can't be justified more next year than you are today. Once you're justified, declared to be a certain way, then you are that way, regardless of what happens. That's why when you get to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, we have been justified through faith. And that's why we have peace with God, because we have been justified. God has made a declaration. So we're not working for justification. Justification is something that happens at a point in time, not a process. And it's a process, a declaration that involves, next in the definition here, by which God declares a sinner. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner. In justification, the picture is God the judge dealing with man the sinner. Sinful man before holy God. Sinful, willfully rebellious man before the holy judge of the universe. This was so important for Paul because Paul, remember when Paul came to Christ? Remember what he was doing? He was zealously obeying God's law. He was giving his entire life to trying to be good before God. Now he was persecuting the church and we think, well, that was really bad. But the reality is, why was he persecuting the church? Because he thought the church was undercutting the whole Old Testament law. He was trying his best to be as good as he could. And he says in Philippians chapter 3, I was doing better than anybody else. You bring the best Jew up to me and he won't be able to match what I'm doing. And what Paul realized was, when he came to Christ, he was not just confronted with all the bad things he'd done. He was confronted with the fact that even the best things he'd done paled in comparison. He says, they're all loss. He says, I count them as loss, as dung, Paul says. That's the language he uses because Paul was realizing that it wasn't just things that he would associate with wickedness. Even his goodness was nowhere near what would be necessary to be in the presence of a holy God. That's where we remember that every single one of us, not just because we've done wrong things. At the very core of our heart, who we are, we're willfully rebellious creatures against our creator. So, justification 
is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous. That is one amazing truth. That the holy judge of the universe, God over all, would look upon you or me in our willful rebellion against him with no desire for him on our own, with desire for our own glory instead of his, and with idolatry at the core of who we are, with guilt written all over our lives, that a holy God would look at you or me at that point and say, not guilty. Righteous. Innocent. Right before me. Peace with me, accepted before me. That makes no sense. This is the gospel. The gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner right before him. Even there is, there is nothing in that sinner that would cause him to say that. So how does he do it? How can he look at you or me? Let's be honest. How can he look at you or me and all of our sin and all of our guilt and say, not guilty? How can he be a true and, and just God, a just judge, and look at you or me and say, not guilty, innocent? The only way he can do it is solely on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. How can a sinner be declared righteous in the eyes of God? What happens is in justification, God takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself and he credits it to you. Think about it. This divine transaction that happens, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us about it. God made him who had no sin to be what? To be sin for us. Don't miss it. God took all that was in your account, all your guilt, all the judgment due your sin, all the penalty due your sin, all the death do your sin, and he poured it out all on his son. You take record for all of that. You take credit for all of that. All that their sin accredited to you. And what he does is he takes his son and the perfect righteousness of his very son, and he takes it and puts it on you. And in the same way that God looked at his son and said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased, fully pleased, now he looks at you or me and says the exact same thing. We haven't done a thing. You haven't done a thing. And the righteousness of Christ is credited to you and he's taken your sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the what? Righteousness of God. Now you see why Paul is so vehemently opposing Peter on this and anybody else who would try to throw anything else into this mix. Because as soon as you say, well this sinner here did get circumcised or did do this or did make this statement or did go through this action, then you are undercutting the power of the cross of Christ and the gift that Christ has given in justification. 
It is not based on what we do. It is solely by faith in Christ Jesus. That's why I said in verse 16 and 17, we're justified by faith in Christ, not by observing the law. Not by what we've done. We've done. God has done everything for us in Christ, and Christ has made it possible for us to have his righteousness. Listen to question number 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism. This really sums up the Protestant understanding of justification, and it is an incredible statement. Listen to this. The question is, in the catechism, the question is, how are you righteous before God? Now think about it. How would you answer that? How are you righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? And the catechism says this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Wow. As if I had never committed a single sin. As if you had never committed a single sin. God would look at you or me that way. A wealthy Englishman in London bought himself a Rolls Royce years ago. At a time when Rolls Royce was saying, this is the car of all cars, it will never break down, you will never have any problems with it. So he bought himself one and he drove it to France. But when he got to France, the Rolls Royce broke down. And so he called the Rolls Royce people and he said, uh, I've got a problem. The car of all cars is broken down, and I need somebody to fix it. They said, I'm sure that can't be. And so they flew a mechanic from England to France who came to where this guy's car was, and it was indeed broken down, and the mechanic fixed it. The mechanic got back on the plane and flew back to England. Weeks went by, and the owner of the car never received the bill. He thought, you know, I've, I've got means. I can pay this bill. I know it cost him a lot to send somebody out of the country to come fix it. And so finally he, he communicated to them and he said, you fixed my car. I'd like to pay my bill. And they sent this car owner a note from the Rolls-Royce office. And the note said, sir, with all due respect, we have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. <laughs> Can I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that the God of the universe looks upon your life and by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he says, I have absolutely no record of anything ever having gone wrong in your life. Is that not an amazing truth? No record. And it's not, don't miss it, it's not that it's swept under the rug or he's pretending it's not there. He's taking the full record of your sins and my sins and put them on his son.
They have been paid for so that when he looks at you and me, there's no record of sin whatsoever, as if we had never sinned. Justification is one awesome, awe-inspiring truth, life-transforming truth. This is the gospel. Now, it almost seems too good to be true. It's why people in the Reformation were saying, that's legal fiction. You're making this up. It's like a fairy tale. You don't have to do anything, and you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself accredited to you without doing anything. It's the same thing Judaizers were saying. If that's the case, then what about, what about the way people live? It's not a way to live. You've got to do something. This is where it gets really, 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 really good. Through faith in Christ, we are accepted before God, but not just accepted before God, as if that was not enough, but not just are we accepted before God through faith in Christ and faith alone, faith in Christ, we are alive to God. Paul's saying to Peter, those who are with him, you know that your salvation, your acceptance before God is by faith alone, and their salvation, their acceptance before God is by faith alone. And that changes the way you live. Look in verse 18 and 19. He says, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What if faith, what if faith is not only just the, the way we are accepted before God, the only way we're accepted before God, what if faith is also the only way we're able to live before God? What if faith is not just a one-time decision where we pray a prayer and move on? What if faith is central in every facet of Christianity, every facet of our lives? Paul has said we're justified by faith. Now he's saying we live by faith. Paul has no room, no room for supposedly praying a prayer, trusting in Jesus, and your life looking the same after that. It's not possible, Paul says. It's not possible because we live by faith. And faith is not just what saved us and brought us to salvation. Faith is what enables us to live out our salvation day by day, moment by moment. This is when you get to verse 20, and you've got this loaded verse. If you do not have Galatians 2.20 hidden in your heart, let me encourage you to hide it in your heart this week. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body or the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse is so loaded with meaning. I have been crucified with Christ. Think about that. We know. We know there's a sense in which what Christ did on the cross, only he could do. The perfect Son of God as a sacrifice for the sins of all of us. But what Paul is saying is, that we were also involved in what was going on on that cross. Same thing he talks about in Romans 6. He says we were baptized into his death. We died with him. William Perkins, a Puritan, put it this way. He said, we are in mind and meditation to consider Christ crucified. First, we are to believe that he was crucified for us. This being done, we must go yet further and, as it were, spread ourselves on the cross of Christ, believing and with all beholding ourselves crucified with him. What a thought. Spread yourself on the cross. You were crucified with 
Christ. You have been crucified with Christ. So what does that mean? Are you dead or alive? Dead and alive? How does this work? Here's what Paul says. He says both. He says we die to sin. That's the, that's the point. All of our sin is put on the cross. He takes all of our sin, past sin, present sin, future sin. It has all been put on the cross. It has all been crucified. All of it. Christ has taken all of it. This is good news. All our sin. All our sin taken and put on the cross. This is why justification, why we need to know this word and what it means because justification is different than forgiveness. You ask forgiveness for something and you go do something else you need to ask forgiveness for that. Justification we talked about this, a once-for-all declaration. You are right before God. Your standing before God is not dependent on whether or not you make it tomorrow perfect. Because you are declared right before God. He has taken all your sin, past, present, future sin, and he has put it on the cross. It's all there. Christ has taken it all. We die to sin. We are dead to sin. And not just sin, we die to ourselves. Paul says, I no longer live. I no longer live. This is where the easy believism that is sold in our culture today under the guise of the gospel is completely undercut. Paul is talking about this point of salvation being a crucifixion of self. A point at which our, our heart of stone and our pride is crushed, is shattered, slain, crucified. I no longer live. Paul says the, the I, the desired things of this world, the I that thought this world revolved around him, the I that lived for the pleasures and the preferences of this world, the I that, that indulged in that which would promote self-esteem and self-confidence and self-justification and self-glorification, the I that revolved around himself, that I is gone, dead, crucified. I no longer live. We die to ourselves. See, even when you get back up to verse 16, when he starts talking about faith in Jesus Christ, the word there in, Literally, it's into, faith into Jesus Christ. It's running into Christ. It's throwing yourself. I love what Perkins said, that Puritan said, spread yourself on the cross. Die to yourself. You're gone. I no longer live. Does that mean we're completely dead? No, but Christ lives in me. So what does Christ do? Well, Christ covers our sin. He covers our sin. We've talked about this. He takes all of our sin upon him. His blood covers it. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and we have been, verse 9 says, since we have been justified by his, anybody remember what the next word is, Romans 5, 9? Since we've been justified by his blood. Blood. We're justified by his blood. His blood covers our sin. It covers our sin. Not swept under the rug. Covered over by the blood of Jesus Christ. He covers our sin, but not just covers our sin. He changes our lives. This is where that word, I've been crucified. Bear with me for a little bit of Greek grammar here. I promise you it'll be worth it. I've been crucified, that verb. Have been crucified, it's a perfect tense verb. Follow with me here. It's a perfect tense verb, which means it happened in the past, but it has present ongoing implications. That's cool, huh? 
That's worth like three years of Greek just for that right there. Happened in the past with present ongoing implications. I have been crucified with Christ and that radically affects the way I live today. Because I'm dead to sin, dead to myself. And alive to Christ and he has covered my sin and he has changed my life. It is no longer about me. It is about Christ living in me and it's about trusting. This is the key. Faith is the key. Trusting Christ to live in me. Trusting Christ to work in me. This is the picture. Faith. I live by faith. Every moment, every day, I'm trusting Christ. Not just I trusted Christ back then when I was eight years old. I'm trusting Christ today. I'm living by faith today. I'm believing Christ for everything I need today. This is where we've talked about this before. We are not in debt to Christ. We're not in debt to Christ This is how we normally view Christianity. Talk about what Christ did for us. Christ died on the cross way back then. That's what he did for me. So now I live for him. Christ did this for me. Sometimes we hear it preached. Christ did this for you. The least you could do is do this for him. Christ did this, now live for him. The only problem with that that is, yes, Christ did this, but Christ has not stopped doing. He's still doing. He's doing right now. Everything we have is because Christ is still doing, still working in our lives at this very moment. He's not stopped. The reason we're not in debt to Christ, we're not paying Christ back because he's still paying us. He's still serving us. He's still empowering us. He's still enabling us. He's doing everything we need. He's giving us every single thing we need. We are not in debt to Christ. We are indwelt by Christ. And that's a word, I promise. That's a word, indwelt. My small group said it's not a word. I looked it up. It's a word, indwelt. Christ in you. Think about it. What if, what if the Christian life is not about you living for Christ. What if the Christian life is actually about Christ living for you and through you and in you and Christ working in you moment by moment, day by day with his indwelling presence and we're trusting in my faith at every single second. This is what Luther talked about. Accepted before God, alive to God by faith. He said, by faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person, which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever. Isn't that a great picture? Do we realize this privilege, this pleasure? You are cemented to Christ as one person. You are one person with Christ. Calvin said the Christian does not live by his own life, but is animated by the secret power of Christ so that Christ may be said to live and grow in him. And it's not just the reformers. This is the testimony of men and women throughout Christian history who've seen, realized this freedom, this reality of Christ in us. Ian Thomas, leader in InterVarsity, who uh, worked in the slums in London. He talked at one point about... uh, a time in his journey, spiritual journey, he was a Christian, 
But everything changed at this particular moment when he realized the truths that we're talking about here. I want you to hear what he said because I'm convinced this reflects, this describes so many Christians. I'm guessing many Christians in this room. Listen to what he said. He said, I had been reduced to a state of complete exhaustion spiritually until I felt that there was no point in going on. Then one night in November, just at midnight, I got down on my knees before God and I just wept in sheer despair. I said, oh God, I know that I am saved. I love Jesus Christ. I am perfectly convinced that I am converted. With all my heart, I have wanted to serve thee. I have tried to my uttermost and I am a hopeless failure. Ian Thomas said, that night things happened. I can honestly say that I had never once heard from the lips of men the message that came to me then, but God that night simply focused upon me the Bible message of Christ who is my life. The Lord seemed to make plain to me that night through my tears of bitterness. He said, you see, for seven years with the utmost certainty, you have been trying to live for me on my behalf the life that I have been waiting for seven years to live through you. Are you there? Are you there? George Mueller, we talked about him, helped multitudes of orphans in a ministry completely based on prayer. He was asked the secret to his life and ministry, and this is what he said. He said, there was a day when I died, utterly died, and as he spoke, he bent lower and lower until he almost reached the floor, his, his biographer said. Mueller continued, I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. I died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Hudson Taylor, his whole biography is called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret because he found this, he saw this. He said, Oh, it is joy to feel Jesus living in you, to find your heart all taken up by him, to be reminded of his love by his seeking communion with you at all times, not by your painful attempts to abide in him. Let me share one more. Ian Thomas, the guy who said the first thing, he gives us a caution here that I want to put before all of us this morning. Beware, he said, lest even as a Christian you fall into Satan's trap. You may have found and come to know God in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving him sincerely as your redeemer. Yet if you do not enter into the mystery of godliness and allow God to be in you the origin of his own image, you will seek to be godly by submitting yourself to external rules and regulations and by conforming to behavior patterns imposed upon you by the particular Christian society that you have chosen and which you hope to be found acceptable. You will in this way perpetuate the pagan habit of practicing religion in the energy of the flesh and in the very pursuit of righteousness commit idolatry and honoring Christianity more than Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the key. It's faith. It's faith not just in the Christ who died 2,000 years ago on your behalf. It is faith in the Christ who lives and dwells in you now to give you every single thing you need to live out the Christian life today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. It is faith in Christ, believing in Christ every single moment. I believe, I believe, I trust in you, Christ. I trust in you. So that when we hear tough commands like we looked at during this fall in that radical series, so that we don't walk away and venture into legalism, I'm going to do these things. If I do these things, then I'll be right before God. 
No, we don't want to go there. We also don't want to ignore these truths. It's hypocrisy. It doesn't line up with the truth of the gospel, our lives. What do we do then? We try to muster up, try to make things right? No, we say in our hearts, I need Christ. I need Christ. I can't do it without Christ. I need Christ to take more of me. I need Christ to change more of my desires and change me more. And I believe you. I trust you. You're right. So make your word come alive in me. And that's where he does his work by grace. We're freed by grace through faith. This is where we come back to where we started. How do we please God? How do we do 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Thessalonians 2 and 4? How do we live to please God? Make it our goal to please God. How can you and I please God? And we said... God's pleasure is not based on your performance for him. Not, pleasure in you is not based on your performance for him because God's pleasure in you is based on Christ's performance for you. It's based on Christ's performance for you. So that when you are tempted to sin or tempted to hang on to the stuff in this world, this world says you need this, and you look to Christ and you say, Christ, I need you to overcome my sin. I need you to give me grace to let go of this. And I trust you. Give me everything I need. How do you know he's going to give it to you? How do you know he's going to be good later today when you're tempted to sin to give you everything you need? How do you know he's going to be good later this week, later this year, when things aren't going exactly as they planned? How do you know that he's gonna be good to give you every single thing you need in those moments. And Paul says, I know because he loves me. And he gave himself for me. It is, I'm convinced, in the New Testament, one of the most personal, poignant moments in all of Paul's writings where he gets extremely personal and he says, I know this, I live by faith because Jesus loves me and Jesus gave himself for me. And I want to remind you that you can trust him because he is passionate about you. He loves you. I know that we talk a lot around here about God's love for and passion for the world and the nations and all peoples and all nations. We talk about those things because it is biblical. We need to realize those things to realize the very purpose for which we are here. But in that process, we must be careful not to lose sight of the fact that yes, God has love for all peoples and all nations and Christ has died for the sake of all peoples and all nations. But at the core, Christ has also died for you. Not just the person sitting beside you, in front of you, or behind you, right where you were sitting. Jesus died for you, for you. For he died for you. He is passionate about you. The God of the universe is passionate about you. Let this soak in. Let it soak in like a waterfall that you're sitting under. The God of the universe is passionate about you. He loves you. He pours out his grace on you. This is an incredible truth. It's extremely personal. He's passionate about you. And we know that because he has paid a price for you. He has given himself for you. He gave himself so that all that he has, all of his benefits, presently and eternally, could be yours. Not based on anything you do, but based on trusting in him. 
That's why we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, we praise you for these truths. And we praise you for the freedom, free gift. We talked about it last week. Oh God, the idea that you have given us salvation as a gift, that you look upon us and say, not guilty. Because of simply faith in Jesus, we confess that we needed you to save us on the cross 2,000 years ago, once and for all, as a price, as a sacrifice for our sins. And in the same way, we need you to save us moment by moment, day by day, from our sin, from our struggles, from our sorrows, God. We, we trusted you as the one who brings salvation full and free. We praise you, God, for giving us grace to trust in you. And we pray that you would give us deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper glimpses of the glory of Christ who saves us by faith, who justifies us by faith. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.